Hello, and welcome to Cinema to the Letter. This episode is that masterpiece known as Let the Right One In. Cinema to the Letter, we break down the very nature of cinema, letter by letter. For each episode of a film miniseries topic, we cover six films that either fit a C for classic, an I for an indie, an N for new, an E for egregious, M for masterpiece, or A for atypical. Who doesn't love an acronym, am I right? I am Thomas, and guys, you just missed out, because like right as I was walking in here, all my cats just were like eating my flesh. They just like swarmed on me. It was really rough, but don't worry. Thank God this isn't a video podcast because I am just bleeding profusely. But it's all good. As we learned from this movie, it can look beautiful and cinematic. <laughs> Fucking cats. Uh, hi, I'm Brian, and uh, I also don't know how she did that Rubik's Cube. I was I was always so bad at Rubik's Cubes as a kid. So Terrible at him as well. I don't know how she did that. I remember I had, this is a great tangent to start off this episode with, um, I was so like much of a Simpsons kid that I got like every single bit of Simpsons merchandise possible, including a Homer Simpson head Rubik's Cube. Okay. Was it just him making different faces on like the six? No, but it was a bust of Homer Simpson's head that okay. just like you would move. Oh, the, like, the so- Rubik's Cube was like Homer's head. Homer's head. Yes. <laughs> What a weird piece of merchandise. I'm, I'm like, there's so much weird Simpsons merchandise. We could devote a whole podcast just to covering Simpsons merchandise. <laughs> that's true. That, that, but that's like one of the weirder ones. I was thinking each of the little like squares was like a different like Homer face or something like that. No, that would be too simple. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Though it was really hard for me to even solve that. Weirdly. That sounds like it would be hard because it's a right. head. <laughs> Right, and it's like, it, all the different pieces, you think it'd be easy, because you know what Homer's head looks like, because I had all those action figures. Anyway, so, uh, let the right one in, is our subject <laughs> for the day. Uh, that's our M for Masterpiece pick for horror, and uh, we should note, this isn't technically our first foreign language film on the show. Technically, we, yes. Cause, yes, because Black Sabbath was, you know, the most readily available version is dubbed in Italian, and I would argue let the right one in feels... More like a definitive, like, this is our first foreign language film. And I think that's key because, honestly, a big thing about this movie I didn't really think about until we picked it was this was a key example for me of, like, I had watched foreign movies prior to this movie coming out. But it was definitely right. one of the first times I can remember, like, hearing about a movie released in a foreign territory and being immediately like, I need to find out the U.S. release. I've heard so much great things about this. Being on, like, the ground level for, like, a foreign language movie growing a huge cult attention. It seems like a prime example of, like, if you've never seen a foreign film, maybe, or if you are, like, interested in foreign films, this seems like a very good entry point uh, yes. in, in many ways. But, yeah, so I'm, I'm very curious. So did you see it kind of around around the time of its release, or when did you first see this movie? 
Well, I mean, it would have been not its original release in Sweden on October 24th, All uh, right. 2008. Um, I think it would have been out probably the, the spring after that, 2009. I right. would think. I don't know. I don't have that release date information on hand, but... Um, Okay, I'm actually saying, yeah, March 2009, Magnet Films puts it out in America. Right. Uh, back when I remember that logo so well, like Magnet releasing, that was just like any interesting movie that was the kind of genre that I was looking for was under Magnet. And yeah, yeah I remember just hearing about it. And then particularly, this is a great example for me of like, I watched this movie with um, my 160 gigabyte iPod. Uh, that I had that was my prized possession and I would often rent movies on iTunes put them on that iPod and then I had a literal thing that was like the red yellow white cables that plugged into my iPod (laughs) so I could watch it on my television which is like this is the greatest invention that I can watch 480 res (laughs) on my television (laughs) but yeah that's how I remember distinctly watching this movie (laughs) That's so funny. Yeah, I I definitely would have watched it, I think, uh, around high school or college. I think it also was kind of one of those, like, foreign films, especially of the 21st century, that you sort of need to see, especially because it's, like, of its depiction of vampires and, and stuff like that, which we'll get into, of course, but, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and this is definitely also one because I, like, traveled a lot of, like, sort of film critic sites and stuff mm-hmm, like that from mm-hmm. genre e-critics who were just like, this is like the great new vampire movie, you gotta see it. So yeah, it definitely has that kind of reputation. We, we kind of started talking about the movie already, so let's go ahead and play the trailer now for Let the Right One In. Hade du tyckt om mig ändå? So you let the right one in, um, which, uh, like I said, came out October 24, 2008 in Sweden, uh, is based on the novel by the screenwriter, uh, John Lifqvist. Uh, sorry, I'm going to be fucking up <laughs> some Swedish names. Uh, all of the, uh, you know, look, I'm a proud supporter of Sweden and all of its natural exports. Thomas like, is holding up a figurine of the Swedish chef from the Muppets. <laughs> what? I mean, that's that's most of my Swedish culture, really. It's, it's you know, Ing- Ingmar Bergman. And Swedish yep. chef, the most important that, cultural touchstones. Those are, yes, absolutely, the most important Swedish figures of all time. <laughs> Love it any time they would make the Swedish chef do Bergman. There's a, there's a sketch on The Muppet Show where they make him do, like, the seventh seal. with like the, <laughs> It's really funny. Anyway, so, let the right one in. Um, I, I have read this novel. I'm guessing, have you... I have not read this novel, but it's very... I'm, I'm, I'm very curious to hear your thoughts then, since you have read it. Um, well, yeah, um, I read it by which I mean I listened to the audiobook. 
um, okay. as I was preparing for, um, I did a panel at Dragon Con in 2019 for, okay. uh, the right one in, it was sort of like an anniversary thing. Um, and so I listened to the audiobook and I rewatched this movie and let me in. That was the last time I watched Let Me In. We'll talk about that in a moment, folks. But the novel, I will say, um, is one of the great examples to me. Because, like, you know, the general reputation is, like, the book's always better than the movie. The book, or at least it's, like, different in an interesting way or whatever. Um, The book is very similar plot-wise, but what gets removed by Lindquist for his adaptation is um, a lot of detail. And a lot of that detail is very graphic, about, you know, some of the implications, say, about um, the uh, character Hakan? Hakan? Right, that's the guy who's the caretaker for El. Yes, right. I don't I don't know if he's ever... I don't know if his name is ever said in the movie, but yeah, that, that is what he's credited as. Right, yes. Um, but um, there's a lot more detail about, you know, what's kind of implied in the movie, very subtly, that he maybe is a pedophile, has some sort of, like, predilection toward children. They make that underlined in extremely unfortunate detail. Really? Hmm. Yeah. And hmm. I mean, I, I get it because I think in the novel he's kind of trying to equate, like, he's trying to make sort of Ellie's situation even more upsetting. Of just like, oh, not right. only does she only have one friend, but this friend actually has this sort of interest in her in a different way. I, I get why that's there in the book. It's just a problem of like, I don't want to be reading pages and pages about this, really. Like, there's other things as well where they... I think the detail just kind of, like, tries to soak you in the misery of this sort of world, as opposed to what I like about the movie, is that it gives you sort of a gateway into, like, this is a very upsetting story, but there's kind yeah. of an odd, tragic beauty to it at the same time. Whereas uh, in the novel, he is just, like, putting your nose in it like you're a dog. Just like, look at this. Look at the depths of humanity. Yeah, <laughs> like, that, like makes it sound like a like a Lars von Trier movie or something where like the the movie itself is very yeah very beautiful and very sweet in a lot of ways um but it is also kind of horrifying in other ways which is the the hanging cloud over this movie is just that upsetting nature of it just it's always right it is very sad but but it feels more Right, it, it it feels like it's more a sort of atmosphere of that sort of sadness and kind of like that sort of you know that that childhood kind of loneliness, of course. And that's what I think makes this movie so interesting, though, is that sort of horror that is juxtaposed by the admittedly quite beautiful s- sequences at times. Yeah, I think this is the first vampire movie we've technically covered, right? Because Black Sabbath kind of has a vampire. Well, but, Van Helsing has the, well, that's the true. king of yeah, vampires. I, I'm sorry, Dracula. That's true. That's right. Okay, this is the first, like, serious vampire movie we've covered. Um, yeah, the first, like, let's get real, everybody, vampire movie right. we've covered. Um, yeah. Are you and, saying that Van Helsing is on a serious film, Thomas? <laughs> something I've realized really about vampire fiction is, like, the stuff I really, truly love about vampires is just, like, there's an inherent kind of mix of, like, there is a joy, but, like, keeping that curse really central at the same time. Because, like, here's mm-hmm. something interesting. I have a vampire's ranked list, because I'm a weirdo on Letterboxd. Oh, like, all all your vam- all the vampire movies you've seen? I also have a Dracula list, which I kind of, like, separate those two, because that... Because, like... You kind of have the, to. The vampire's list is 84. If I had a Dracula, 
then it would just be like double basically (laughs) right (laughs) exactly (laughs) um but so my top five i have here um i've got a weird mix where i've got thirst recent edition yep yep Mm -hmm. um a movie you know what i'm gonna save the title for because someone might be talking about it later on the show plug plug um then uh what we do in the shadows then let the right one in and then the first blade interesting that's a bit controversial i feel like yeah i prefer blade two but I also don't. It's not the gap isn't as far for me from Blade One to Blade Two. I would um, say it's not extremely far for me either. The other way, it's just yeah. But the point is, all those movies, despite being varying different genres, all have sort of that like central conceit of like, God, we we shouldn't exist. This is like a terrible thing to be. Yeah, and it's rough. And some people, you know, go out and fight uh, <laughs> Stephen Dorff. And others uh, sort of uh, wallow in their misery. Yeah, it, it is the sort of like contradiction almost of like of the vampire as like both this very romantic, very like beautiful sort of thing creature, I guess, and also the fact that it is a literal bloodthirsty creature that is like literally murders people. It is sort of an interesting like balancing act that this movie I think does very very well and is one of the better ones to i think handle that in a more quote-unquote serious way yeah for sure um so i'm curious what was your perception of this movie before because you given our our age gap you mm-hmm. would be have been aware of this movie before so so what was like the reputation you sort of gleaned from it yeah it was one of those like like i mentioned before kind of like the like baby's first foreign films kind of thing of like, you know, watch a first foreign film. It's, and, and it was, it was that I kind of knew of it as a vampire film and I had mainly known it through Tomas Alfredson, the director of the film. Um, because we'll I think I would have, we will, we, we will talk, talk about it. We, we, yes. I mean, I mean like I would have, I think found out about this movie or I would have watched this movie around the time that the snowman was coming out in theaters. Um, Oh, setting so, up your expectations even worse. Right. I watched that and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, which, I mean, should, should, we, should we talk about Tomas Alfredson a bit? Before we get to that, you, you didn't finish your point. Right, I'm sorry. Making, right. So, I, yeah, when I watched this kind of in the lead up to The Snowman, I, yeah, I was, was very interested in it because I had, you know, heard a lot of great things and I was very interested in this this vampire movie that was treating vampires with a bit more groundedness I, I i hate i don't like using that term as much because i think like grounded and like realistic all those terms can kind of the connotation can often be with like you know dark and gritty you know snyder verse kind of shit but like a more grounded version of of a vampire that was also you know it's a swedish film i am very fascinated by uh sweden obviously i love like ingmar bergman of course but i think it's just a place that fascinates me. I love just the architecture, the the snow of it, of course, with this, especially this movie. Yeah. But when I was going into it, I think it was that the sort of grounded vampire film that was about kids. And I love this movie. I think it's absolutely just great. I, it really grows for me every time I see it as well, where like watching it a few years ago, it, I, I thought like, Oh, this is a great, a great little vampire movie. And then watching it this time, I was like, oh, this is a very beautiful and s- kind of sad and very 
it's got a lot of things it's trying to to kind of talk about in this movie. It, it's yeah, it's a really unique movie. Yes. So, you know, you, we kind of referenced him earlier. Let's go ahead and dig a bit into a fellow Tomas, Tomas Alfredson, who's our director here, who before this had directed, because I'm looking at his his letterbox thing, which I know has a lot of different... Yeah, it has a lot of, like, short films and, like, TV stuff he would have done before. Right, because he did, like, he obviously, like, worked in Sweden before mm-hmm. this. This isn't his first film, right? No, I'm seeing that he directed this, uh, what looks like a a, sh- a long movie called, oh man, Fira Nianser av Brunt, um, which is like a three-hour, it looks like a movie, but I, I don't know. Uh, this is kind of his first, I would say, theatrically released film, though. Okay, so, because yeah, this is the first time at least us dumb Americans were aware of him to any degree. And right. so you had, like, Let the Right One In comes out, and, like, at the time, like, oh my god, this is so great, I gotta see whatever this guy's next movie is. And they announced Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, which on paper was like, oh, I don't know if this is gonna appeal to me, I don't know if this is gonna work for me, and uh, that movie's great. That movie rules. Masterpiece. Absolute masterpiece. Just disorienting film, and has so much of the qualities that make him an interesting director. Um, yeah, I love that movie, but... But go on, because uh, something interesting happens. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and that movie, if you don't know, by the way, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy is the spy movie that takes place during the Cold War. And mm-hmm. it's got the most amazing cast of all time with, like, specifically white British people. White British yes. dudes. You got <laughs> Gary Oldman, Colin Firth, Tom Hardy, Mark Strong, one of John Hurt's last movies. The great John Hurt. Love Wonderful him. John Hurt. Uh, Toby Jones, <sighs> Siren Hines, Benedict <sighs> Cumberbatch. Oh. <sighs> So just many. all the British men. So yeah. many of them. And it's just one of the, like, a, a genuine, when people use that the term, like, gritty spy thriller, this is one of the only, like, genuinely gritty spy thrillers that is, like, incredibly, like, the atmosphere of this movie and just the way it handles, like, the spy thriller is unreal. I, I like, one of my favorite, I think, spy thrillers of all time. Also, just, I won't spoil a thing about it, but one of my favorite endings of all time. That montage said to the La Mer is just, like, one of my favorite just uses of a song in a movie, and just the editing of that sequence, so good. But yeah, so, two for two. Great. Tomas. Buddy. Can't wait for what you got next. And what he had next sounded interesting. Uh, It was the movie you mentioned earlier, The Snowman, which, you know, based on uh, the... Harry Hole books. His actual character name. Is every this. time I think, every time I'm reminded of that, I just it makes me laugh. So good. <laughs> but Harry Hole played by Michael Fassbender, um, yeah. and I know J.K. Simmons was in that movie. There's a lot of like there is. People. You've got oh, Val, uh, well, Val Kilmer, but Val Kilmer. You've oh. got Charlotte Gainsbourg, yeah. uh, J.K. Simmons. You've got Toby Jones again. Chloe Savini, I remember because she plays twins inexplicably in that movie, and they don't announce it very well. God, I did not rewatch this movie. I am fascinated by it. I, I really have been meaning to rewatch it, but it. We'll, we should have that. It's a potential e for egregious pick. There's a lot to talk about with that movie. Yeah, but um, I'll just say uh, Chloe Savini um, in the movie at one point. Spoilers: uh, she plays a character who Harry Hole is like meeting up with, and then she dies, and then Chloe Savini shows up again. 
And you're like, wait, what? And then she says, oh, I'm her twin sister. Like, wait, why are we finding this out now? <laughs> yeah, that is a weird movie. It is, um, it makes no sense. It is like, and, and I, I believe it was a, a victim of like studio interference. Uh, well, literally, Tomas Alfredson said apparently like they didn't shoot something like 20% of the script. Like that's how rushed the production was. And, and you like can it. tell. You really can tell. It, it is a it is a prime example of while you're watching a movie, you're like, it feels like there's bits missing. Like I feel like there's like scenes just plucked out of this thing. It, it is like the movies. I, I saw that theatrically. Same. It, it felt like watching just like a movie collapse in front of you. Like it was an actual structure, like Jenga. It's yeah. cinematic Jenga, just like falling. <laughs> right it is. Your face. And it just, I, I remember the, in the trailer, it was like, an, it was executive produced by Martin Scorsese, although he I think... He was going to direct it at a certain point. Yes, I I, yeah. Thing, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, yeah, he he kind of backed off of it, but they still definitely used that to market the movie. Well, yeah, because you tell Moss, was just like, well, Marty will make sure I get final cut, that's his thing. He right, becomes he a always, producer, and then he gives mm-hmm. me final cut, it's like, my cut, which is his cut. Um, and then even Marty's just like, I'm, I'm sorry, but I can't, I can't do it. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> just can't do. I gotta, I gotta shoot, shine a light. I'm sorry. I gotta go to the Stones concert. I'm sorry. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta make TikToks with my daughter. Uh. <laughs> no, this is 2008. That wouldn't have happened yet. That's true. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but it, a very bad movie, unfortunately. But it is like, it feels like one of those situations where a great filmmaker makes a bad movie, but it isn't entirely their fault. And I would even say. From what I remember of the snowman, there are the the bits feel well directed. You know, it, it is just yeah, like we said earlier, it just feels very incomplete. Yeah, so that movie didn't work out for him, obviously. Um, but he has made at least one other film um, that it's I can't find an English translation. <laughs> sure, I don't know. It's a Swedish comedy. It stars a bunch of Swedish people I never heard of, no scars guards or anything. Um, but yeah, it looks like it kind of doesn't exist. Well, it, it also has not been released. Like it has oh, only been released in like Europe. So it, yeah, it, okay. yeah. I don't know. I I hope the best for that dude though. He's a very talented director based on just those two movies that I like. I do too. Yeah, he feels like the type of you know. Uh, I hope that he either gets to like make something he wants to make in the Hollywood system because clearly like Hollywood was like just they fucking snatched this guy up um well so is it Secret him... Soldier Spy a British movie right or is that an American it just seems really British I think it is very British I'm trying to find out who yeah it was like Studio Canal and like yeah it's a, yeah it yes. was a very British so movie. the Brits first got him just like pip pip cheerio Thomas <laughs> yeah and then yeah and then Hollywood got him and didn't Slam do great, him but into I, the ground. <laughs> yeah, but I either either I hope he can get something made in Hollywood, or I hope he, you know, goes back to Sweden, uh, not in a xenophobic way, like just in a <laughs> get out of here, go yeah. back, to, go back to your country, Sweden, <laughs> get your much paler asses out of my country. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I hope he gets to you know hopefully make something that he wants to make. In Swedish, because that's something that often happens with, like, really great foreign film directors who mm-hmm. get a chance to make a movie here. And then, yeah. like, because that recently happened with, I forgot what the guy's name is, but he did Rare Exports. 
uh, which was a really great like sort of Christmas horror movie out there for everybody, where it's like someone discovers Santa's like an eternal being that's like a Lovecraftian monster almost. Cool. Um, and the kids have to capture it. <laughs> it's like the kids are going to save the day from demonic Santa. <laughs> cool. Um, then he did the Samuel Jackson movie Big Game, which is like a kid has to save President Samuel Jackson from like terrorists. It's like Die Hard. Um, it's trying to be kind of funny, but it's bad. It's very bad. Jim Broadbent has a German accent in it. Okay. And I'm like, why would you get Jim Broadbent? Oh, no, sorry. He has an American accent. That's the thing. He's playing like the oh, that's Secretary worse. of Defense. And it's like, why? If you yeah. get Jim Broadbent, you want a big bushy beard. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, and but then he just recently did that movie Sisu, which rules. Even like, we're, it's not a horror movie, but it's very gory. Very fun. Right. About, like the, the old man who's like the most excellent special forces guy that ever lived. And these Nazis fuck with him in Sweden. <laughs> <laughs> so then he just like kicks their asses like that's the kind of thing i would hope for for most foreign film directors that kind of like comeback when they return to making the movie mm-hmm. mostly like with their their home country but it just it rarely happens like even as much as i love del toro which i do love del toro mm-hmm. guillermo yeah so much but i would love to see him do another just spanish movie i don't know if he'll ever if he ever will do that but I hope so. Yeah, because he, he did that. He sort of, like, he made his first few films. He made a Mimic, right? In America, which, yes. Yeah, which was, like, a bad experience for him. Um, well, then he goes, he did go back. He did go yeah, back he briefly, because Devil's Backbone mm-hmm. and Pan's Labyrinth were both, yeah. like, mm-hmm. Spanish productions. Yeah, so he's, like, done it before. So, I, yeah, it, it's an interesting thing, I think, when, like, a, a, a filmmaker from a different country sort of comes to America and then kind of goes back and... and gets a chance to make something yeah so i I hope that happens for him because he is a great director as we'll we'll get into with this movie as well but yeah so let's just get into the movie then yes stepping around everything so if you're unaware of this movie um it takes place in 1982 but not in an annoying way there's like rubik's cubes and there's like some i guess swedish pop songs from the 80s that we hear (laughs) but that's about it we follow oscar um who is our young boy protagonist about 12 years old and he's, you know, not very popular. He gets picked on by some brutal boys. Like, so, they're so mean. Motherfuckers. <laughs> they're so mean. Just horrible so, children. You know what? At that point, horrible person. There's no kids anymore. <laughs> You're just yeah. a horrible piece of shit person. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so they seem pretty bad. They do a lot of like, uh, hey, piggy squeal. And like, I wish I could cut your throat or whatever. Which, to be fair, is what Oscar is saying in private. There's a point where he's like, Stabbing a tree, and just yeah. like, and so you know, not great look for a twelve-year-old to be alone stabbing stuff uh, in the middle of nowhere, especially when someone is watching him in the distance. And it turns out to be Ellie, um, who is this young—I don't know. This is kind of tough based on the context of who she is. Um, this young person, yeah, who um, just appears like a like a twelve-year-old girl. Right. In the yes. appearance. Yes. Um, and so that initially kind of like sparks an interest. They have a bit of a conversation there. Basically, the movie kind of shuffles between Oscar's real life and then him hanging out with this vampire. And a lot of sort of background stuff about the vampire character, particularly uh, because she has a guardian, um, Hakan, as I brilliantly said before. Um, you know, <laughs> I was, look, I was trying to make sure I didn't see, say Eli at all during this. <laughs> they okay. do say it like L, like they had, they, Elle, yeah, it's, right. it's Swedish, yeah. 
<laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, so this guy who is implied to be Ellie's guardian, um, mm-hmm. and uh, there might be a bit more context to it because as is revealed to us, basically through him trying to capture somebody, trying to drain their blood in the middle of the snowy Swedish woods. Um, he's, he's, he does that a couple times earlier in the movie, and we kind of get a sense of this town as well, where there's, like, a, say, a group of four adults who also kind of weave in and out of the story. Yeah. And, uh, you know, while this is going on, um, at a certain point, Hakan ends up getting caught as he's about to kill somebody, and then proceeds to damage his face with acid, and yeah. then Ellie comes over and uh, pays him a visit. You know, while he's in the hospital. In the hospital, yeah. Doesn't bring flowers, but... You know, I mean, it's kind of cliche at this point. Just bring a your big old hug, big old hug, and then a body slam, a big old vampire hug. <laughs> for sure, for sure. So yeah, um, with all that setup, it does definitely like the moment I I can still remember watching this movie, and this opening scene happens, and I was like, this is unlike any other vampire movie mm-hmm. I've ever seen. There have been a lot of a few movies like this, especially in the kind of the 21st century um, of like vampire movies that don't present themselves as vampire movies, right? Like if you didn't know the plot of this movie and you were just watching it blind, you you would have to sort of pick up the pieces that she's a vampire. And the word vampire is never said until like close to the end of the film, I think. Yeah. And there's something about that, about the sort of, the way that information is doled out in this movie of like, you see Ellie and her caretaker like move in and you kind of get vague hints at like their conversations. Like maybe you'll hear something through the wall where, uh, cause Oscar and them, the, the, the walls are very like thin uh, in this apartment building, I guess. And he can kind of hear the conversations they're having. And I just love vampire movies like this that are sort of very subdued about like, it being a vampire and and doling out that information in very slow but interesting ways. While also giving it, I think, a lot more sort of like this like humanity, despite the fact that the main point of it is like the lack of humanity, but just Mm -hmm. having it kind of be like a lot of the stuff with Oscar feels kind of slice of life, even though there is conflict going on. There's stuff I didn't even mention about like he lives with his single mother and he occasionally Mm -hmm. visits his father who seems very distant and prone to alcohol. Uh, so this kid's living a wonderful life uh, that we see, and that automatically puts you at an unease just on like a human level, right? Where it's just like, oh god, this shit's happening to this kid. That's rough. And then, oh look, he found a friend. That's so wonderful. I love it when kids can socialize and really like find connections when they live near each other. You, those really important friendships. The second line she says is like, "I can't be friends with you." <laughs> <laughs> yep. That's that's the interesting thing, yeah. It just feels so, like, it, it grounds you in that humanity, which, you know, like you said, grounded can be a loaded term, but I think it yeah. generally does give you just a base of, like, what the sort of human level of this emotion is, and then adding that genre context, I think, makes it all the more palpable. Yeah, and, and like, as someone who, like, I was never, like, bullied as a kid or anything, but I did spend, like, a lot of time as a kid alone and, like, you know, didn't have a lot of friends. And this... Wouldn't know what that's like at all. Uh, You know, people who host a podcast (laughs) definitely have lots of friends. (laughs) The movies are our friends. Um, (laughs) They don't judge me. I judge them. (laughs) Yes. This movie does capture that sort of loneliness, that childhood loneliness 
very well. Mm-hmm. And, and just kind of the the boredom, kind of, the, like, the list, listlessness? I'm not sure if I'm saying that word right. Um, the, just that feeling of, like, it, it's... I mean, it's all... Co- this movie, it's all covered in snow. It's very cold. It's very, like, a bit bleak in a lot of ways. But, yeah, that the humanity really does ground it. Especially, like, the com- the very short conversations that he has with, like, his mom or, yeah. you know... Uh, especially the subtle ways. Like, there's a part where the kids are bullying him and um, I forget what they hit him with, but they hit him in the face and he gets, like, a cut. And... Right he sort of you know just kind of it cuts to him at dinner and he just casually goes like oh i fell at at school i was playing and just that that i don't know the the way it's handled with this kind of yeah the a humanity it feels very sad in in a in a in a in a, in a great way right I think the closest to this i had seen in terms of even like vampire movies or anything like that would be like a near dark which is very different aesthetically in many ways. Yeah. <laughs> but there is the element of, like, say, the, the Homer kid, the, the little kid who is basically like... Who, by the way, I found out something interesting about that kid. I believe his name is Joshua Jason Miller. He's the kid of Jason Miller from The Exorcist. Oh. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> very he was a child actor. Very weird. He also recently became a writer. He wrote that movie I told you about, The Final Girls. I recommended it previously on the show. Oh, he wrote that. Okay. Which makes huh. it a lot more interesting considering, like, who he is and the plot of that movie being about a woman who remembers her mother only through, like, this slasher movie that she was in. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. That adds a lot more to that That's... movie. Yeah. God. But, but anyway, his character... Movie. In Near Dark, um, is this little this like vampire who became a vampire as a small child, and there's a like brief subplot that involves him like they're staying at a hotel, and he sees this little girl who's trying to get like soda out of the machine or whatever. That's like his age physically, but not yeah. mentally, and it's one of the more like I remember being so upset by that despite the fact that prior to this point in the movie I'm like yeah these this is a fucking great vampire movie from <laughs> yeah. the 80s this rules and then it's like oh yeah right <laughs> it sucks to be these people it's so rough being yeah. a vampire and i think this movie brilliantly extrapolates it basically makes that an entire movie yeah i mean like a thing i want to talk about which is like for example your zoom background which is the the wonderful the scene where he hangs the guy upside down and the dog is like barking at him it's adorable dog just going up and yeah <laughs> Oh, Snow White Dog, contrasting yes. that blood, especially when she ends up licking it up. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but this is kind of like one of the things about this movie in terms of like the way it handles like the grounded side of the vampire is. Yeah. I watch a lo- we watch a lot of vampire movies, and we know the whole thing is vampires need to consume blood so that they can keep on living. And then yes. you watch these vampire movies. And they're just like slashing and hacking away, and so much blood is going like everywhere. And this is a movie that like is like, well, no. If you were a vampire, if you were trying to get like blood, you would use like yeah, like a little funnel, and you would like drain the body because you would want to get as much blood as, as much possible. Of that as possible. Yes. Yeah, and it's something that I've I just have always loved about this movie, where like the way he sets up his little the the handler sets up his little kit. 
and like the way he sets it up when he's like outside, you know, about to get slitten. Um, <laughs> but it, yeah, it is something that's just so interesting and is like, it doesn't feel like one of those like grounded in a bad way sort of things like pick any joke from the movie Renfield recently. Um, it, it just feels like a, a moment that like grounds this in a way that I love. I think it's so, it's so interesting. And so like also just kind of horrifying the, 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 the sort of callousness, which way this guy is like with which this guy is like taking care of this business and sort of hanging this guy upside down. It's, it's horrifying, but I, I, I love it. Well, it's got, I mean, that Snow White clinical nature to it. I think that's yeah. the big thing. Is mm-hmm. that because of the nature of the setting, and that it's just constantly snowing, but not to like a degree where it's like, oh, this is dangerous, but more in like, it feels like a purgatory. And I love the people of Sweden, but admit <laughs> yeah. it. Like, it feels kind of like a very serene, but still it feels like purgatory, especially at night. <laughs> just this, like, yeah, this, this is, is a holding is- place. <laughs> Yeah, I think this is what attracts me to to Sweden as a place. I think I'm I'm very interested in that idea. Um, living in purgatory, basically. <laughs> yeah, but it's very beautiful and like you know. Right. <laughs> yes. Um, but I think that adds to sort of like the atmosphere here, where like mm-hmm. everything feels so clinical. Everything, like I mentioned, that kind of slice of life idea. When we get to doing that, that like with Ellie after we've done it with Oscar for so long, it helps connect these two characters who are similarly just like you know seem roughly the same age and you know one of them is very neglected the other one was in a harmful relationship to some degree maybe you know the implications because they don't spell out things that the book spells out but it leaves you enough for like okay this is like harmful from like you know either side of this it's really rough um but then this little boy who needs some kind of connection finds it in this other sort of like lost person Mm -hmm. but then there's all this like context to it and it's treated just like, you know, he finds out about it through vague context clues that she gives. Right, yeah. Um, and then it's just like, you know, convincing someone basically to make a very rash decision at far too young an age. Yeah, I mean, like, it's my favorite aspect of the movie is the way that he sort of figures out that she's a vampire. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, like, the because we have the scene where they, like, he goes to make a blood pact with her and she sees the blood and goes like feral basically and there's a really unsettling shot where you get like she looks old like she doesn't look like the 12 year old kid she looks like i guess like her true vampire self the dorian gray picture if you will <laughs> yes <laughs> um but then we get like yeah the, the afterwards where like she's sort of saying like you have to let me in and like the horrifying scene where he like well he, he's like well what if i don't like is there like he like, i love the little thing where he's like is there like a a bubble protecting you like is there a force field and then like just the that scene which is like so quiet and is like a conversation and yet feels horrifying with like just all the blood that's like ugh, it's like like she's just being squeezed it's, from within like yeah. her pores are being squeezed by like some hand it, it's moments like that that is like pulls you from like this movie that is like like you said very human and makes it like reminds you like it's a horror movie it, which is just one of the brilliant things this movie does i think you know what's a real horror movie growing up am i right but no yeah 
I mean, that's that's also what it's kind of going for at the same time, being at, like, that specific age. Where, mm-hmm. you know, 12, like, it's, it seems like Oscar has not gone through puberty at this no. point. So, and I want to give a credit to these two actors who, guess what, more names getting fucked up. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> I don't know, you want to uh, take a crack? Yeah, let me, you let me take a crack at yeah. these Swedish names. Are you talking about the, the actors of Oscar and, and Ellie? Yes. Okay, yes. As, as Oscar, we have uh, Kare Hedebrandt. And as Ellie, we have Lena Leanderson. I like the Anderson. Yeah. <laughs> it's my best attempt at a, sweet, at, a, at a Swedish accent. Oh, is there another Skarsgård in the room? I didn't know there was another one. <laughs> another one. <laughs> so, um, I, I love the performances in this movie. Uh, like... And especially because children and child performances can often be, like, the worst part of a movie. I think right, you have these, a big thing. You have... I think you're much harsher on child actors than I am. I, a bit. I don't, I don't like kids. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I am, yeah. I, I can... Because I think I can be very susceptible to just, like, how annoying they can be in movies, a lot of child performances. Um... But in this movie, like, the, just, yeah, the humanity that these characters have, and, I mean, Oscar's performance is is great. I, I love just the the way that this Oscar feels like a, such an, an idiosyncratic, like, kid. Like, he's got all these, like, little, I don't know, just the way he moves, the way his, like, his mouth moves and stuff like that is so, like, unique. And I think is so, he gives such a great performance. Now, I will say that Lee Anderson as Ellie is fantastic. I mean, like, because it's a very difficult performance of having to act like a 12-year-old child, but also be this immortal being. (laughs) And I think that so many of, like, the conversations, just the conversations they have, just her mannerisms, just the way that, like, all of that stuff, I think she does a really great job in this movie. Yeah, and I remember she won a bunch of, like, awards from, like, more smaller awards. Like, I'm seeing here she won the Online Film Critics Society Awards. That's probably where I heard about this from, because I remember just, like, they had, like, a Breakthrough Performer Award, which I wish more award shows had, because I think that's... that'd be great. I I like that as sort of a... Because they had the Junior Oscar, like, way back when, like, Judy Garland was around. That was oh fun. right, but and and the Saturn Award she was nominated for. Yes, I'm seeing here for like younger actors. So yeah, I had heard of her through just like all these things, and then just watching that performance, especially finding out the big thing I didn't even know about this until fairly recently was that she's dubbed in the movie. That's not her natural huh. voice. Huh. I didn't know that. It's a uh, Elifi Salem, I believe, because the whole thing was Thomas Alfredson really loved her look, but. Her, when he, like, saw the footage, he noticed just, like, oh, she talks like a child. Like, her actual voice cannot, like, contain that kind of maturity. So they dubbed it over with this praise to that dub actress as well. Because uh, it's just good enough to where, like, it's, like, deeper. It sounds like someone who might have been through puberty, but not very far into it. No, yeah, I I literally didn't know that until just now. Like, <laughs> it, Does that yeah, change your, it, your opinion? It, it, it just... It makes, I think, me like the movie more because I, I never yeah. noticed that. It's not a very noticeable, especially because we've we've just watched a dubbed movie, this uh, this miniseries. So. Are you saying that wasn't Boris Karloff's accent? 
Oh man, what a funny movie that was. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like the and there is like sections where like uh, I think it's after um, her handler like fumbles the the second one where like uh, Ellie will go into like I guess their their natural voice, which is like this like uh, sort of voice. <laughs> where um, is she? Yeah. <laughs> That'd be great. Yeah. Actually, Christian Bale dubbed her in the in the American dub. Wow, not since House Moving Castle have you participated in a dub. <laughs> oh man, yeah, it, it's it is like that. That is such a great decision because I think it, it's a decision I've never like noticed. Really, I've never like put pulled yeah. attention to, and 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 yet like noticing it now, I'm like. Right, it makes sense, and also it, it it just makes this character feel more developed and more fully fleshed out, which I think is great. Yeah, and it's really interesting, especially considering like these two actors uh, didn't do much after this movie. They no, I looked because yeah. I was curious, and I looked it up. And I just gotta say, like, one Lena Landerson doesn't even have like a filmography list on her Wikipedia page. A very lengthy Wikipedia page yet no not even a filmography. Um huh. unlike uh our, our male lead, who does at least have one other film after this, and I wanna I I need to prepare you for this because this is oh. <laughs> it's a teen um Norwegian comedy where he's yep. like the new kid coming from Sweden to Norway. Um and it's called Amor's Baller, yep. which in English translates to Cupid's Balls. Hell yeah. <laughs> Look. Those th- those Scandinavians, they just have it figured they have movies figured out, okay? I mean, especially when it's like it's a teen rom com and it's called that. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah. It also seems to not be a movie that was released uh worldwide, maybe. I don't know how Are you saying is, that but... a football film wouldn't <laughs> translate very well? I don't know, people watching the World Cup, I'm sure. <laughs> Bend it like Beckham, baby, come on. Bend it like Beckham. Oh, man. Um, but anyways, um, what were we talking about? This is my mo- I'm sorry, this is the most I've done, like, dumb tangent, like, joke things. It is. It's a, on, it feels weird for this movie. It is arguably the one of the most, like, quote, like, serious movies we've covered. <laughs> I love it. It's great. This is great. This is a great episode. This is our best. Yes, one. for sure. Well, <laughs> put in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, into the webbies. <laughs> um, but anyway, so yes, um, I, I think so. These two actors are very impressive. I think the whole cast really is because we should talk about some of these other people. Like particularly, I need to talk about uh, Virginia, as played by Ika Nord, um, who is part of that like sort of adult group I was talking about, and I believe she's Locke's girlfriend. A boyfriend? Yeah, she, well, girlfriend. There's, there's Locke and there's Yak, which doesn't make it easy. The one with, weirdly, like, hey, I love how we have been saying so many Swedish names. Uh, Locke is played by Peter Karlberg. <laughs> very normal man name. Very no- normal name, yes. Um, and he's very good in the movie, like the both of them are, because I think they have sort of like the side tragic subplot going on just in the background about mm-hmm. someone who's been transformed into a vampire with Virginia after she encounters Ellie. Well, who is the first one to die though? Is it, is it Locke who, who like, um, um, after no. the first, no, is it? 
Well, no, because uh, Locke would be the guy who like dies last because she ends up killing him when he sneaks in. That okay. Guy. So so yeah. God damn it. So Yak is the guy in the little like um underpass, like in the little bridge, right? Yes, that's him. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Uh yeah. So like it's what what is the sequence of events? Is it the in the forest, the one your background dog? That's like early in the movie, pretty much. Okay. So is it like it's after the I can't remember the sequence of events, but the, she basically Ellie kills Yak under the bridge, Do right? I look like a scene selection screen to you. um yes but but that happens and then the the cat lady sees right that is the but yeah like her whole journey uh, virginia's journey is why we're the one to talk about because she's my favorite mm -hmm. of the side people in this movie because it seems like her and Locke don't have a great relationship they don't seem like they just hang all the time in like these dank ass bars just like talking about the past and just being total spoiled sports and she's just like i want to get the fuck out of here and then at one point she does because Locke's being an asshole and then she runs across this little girl and she gets bit and now she's a vampire and uh just this character who was having it rough not like horrible but just like a kind of bummer of an existence now has to contend with i'm a vampire and her one (laughs) solace is like i don't want to live anymore so she has the power to at least have somebody open a window and exhume her in a giant fireball. It, it is one of the most like striking images, I think, of this movie is that scene, um, which I had forgotten about. I, I was like, I, for some, I was like, doesn't someone catch on fire in this movie? And then that scene happens and it, it is very impactful. Um, but I do love this whole like not just Virginia's like story, but the, the whole side plot of like these characters who are like these, like just locals, like just like live in their lives and like whatever. And like, yeah, the way that like they come into contact with the vampire and it is like that sort of what we've seen so far of Ellie and Oscar's like lives, them together, the kind of sweetness, the like the gentleness that kind of happened that the bond that forms between them and then, like the that scene where Virginia is is transformed is like horrifying and just like again pulls you back and shows you like this is like the the horror of the vampire. But we also need to talk about. I didn't mention it in my sort of runner, but the scene where like she goes back to the apartment, bunch of cats in the apartment, and we've seen there's a couple hints of like cert, like of cats like looking at Ellie or whatever, and being like oh, which is a common thing in horror films. That's like. Always mm-hmm. sort of like canary in the coal mine, not literally, different animal, um, where <laughs> it's just like, oh, an animal gets upset at some being that we see. They're not mm-hmm. good. We can't trust them. This movie goes one step above where it's like, that usually happens when some villain passes by a pet store. How about yeah. they walk into a home that is drenched in cat? <laughs> <laughs> I do. Here's here's the thing with the scene, though. I Yeah. Because I, I I like it in that sense, like of what you've described of of like animals, you know they don't they don't like vampires. They can always tell. I find it a little goofy, <laughs> like a little bit, like just when she has all the cats on her and it's like ah, like I find it a little goofy. Um, I think well, there's a ridiculousness to that. I think that's the thing yeah. mm-hmm. with this movie is that it kind of it embraces the fact that there is a ridiculous otherworldliness to that, but presents it in this like really upsetting context. So we're like, I do agree. I mean, look, the CG isn't great 
on these yeah. things. But yeah. I think at least it looks like it's that kind of CG jerkiness that at least works for me for, like, something that I know is real, like a cat, just fucking, like, pouncing on a human being. It just feels, like, uncanny, valley, unnatural in a mm-hmm. way that, like, works for, like, the horror that's intended. Um, but at the same time, yeah, she does literally, like, fling a cat out the window, which <laughs> yeah, is both a very horrifying bit and kind of a funny bit in a really sadistic fashion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, how do you feel about sort of, we haven't mentioned, like, maybe the boys or the teachers. There's the one guy, the swim instructor, teacher guy, who I do yeah. love, like, feels perfectly like Swedish teacher, who's not, like, an asshole, but also doesn't want, like, like, I love the scene where um, Oscar and him are talking at one point. And he's just like, have you thought about joining the swimming club? Yeah, because he had heard about it. Oscar like, right. asked him about it. And he's like, well, yeah, you know, if you train well, you'll get strong. Yeah, come by. You don't need to sign up or anything. And just the awkward beat. And it's like, see you. <laughs> just like the most polite way to say, get the fuck out. <laughs> yeah, I like him. I, I like him. Yeah. I, he feels like very much like, it just reminds me of like gym teachers I had in like school. Yeah just very naturalistic and i even when he like gets upset about like the fire thing when the distraction happens near the end of the movie i do love like he's he's trying to do the thing like he's trying to do the swim teaching with like oscar it's kind of cute and it's like all right it's very sweet it's very sweet uh and then just this kid comes up the way it's shot too it's just their legs kid Mm -hmm. goes up a bit to like whisper and then the body language on that actor just like the way his feet move, like, oh, God! And then he, like, bolts for the door. <laughs> Very natural, too, of just, like, a, a teacher who's like, oh, my God, something's going wrong. Yeah. I, I also do love the scene, uh, speaking of of the, the teacher, like, when they're on, like, the little, the trip, kind of, that little, like, when they're on the ice, and the right. both Oscar is about to, like, get his, some kind of revenge on the, he's gonna fight back against the bullies, and also... They are finding not Yak's body. It's the first body, the guy who's hanging above Thomas right now. Um, <laughs> it's more like to my left. He is, yeah, he is like to like yeah to your side. Yeah, but I love that scene. Just the way that like he's watching the the bullies. I love that he's like a teacher who's like I fucking know who the bad kids are, and I'm 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 keeping an eye on them. But then the way that that scene is edited, where like you hear the scream of like the bully kid that he's hit but the scream of like the kids across the like lake or whatever who have found the body and just the and it's like especially one after the other it's like yeah you mm-hmm. hear the scream of the one kid long enough for it to register that something's gone wrong yeah and then to your left another problem has arisen <laughs> <laughs> yeah but i love i love that scene and just and the way that it is also like I mean, just the whole rhythm of this movie is so interesting in the way that it's shot, in the way that it's... Um, who, by the way, we have not mentioned, but this oh, movie yes. is shot by the great Hoyt Van Hoytema, who, of course, is now... You know, he has shot Oppenheimer, he shot Nope. Um, great, incredible cinematographer. A wonderful cinematographer, yeah. Mr. Handheld IMAX Camera. I just, I remember that fact that he was, like, right. handheld yes. an IMAX camera. <laughs> Those things are, like, what, like, 80 pounds oh, or something? They're insane. On what movie was that? Where he did that? I think that was Dunkirk. Because okay. it's, like, on the beaches. Like, they, he, like, was holding it on his shoulder. Right. Um, yeah, and this was his first film that he shot. And he, of course... Worked with Thomas Alfredson again on Tinker Taylor. And 
I loved, I mean, so much of the look of this movie is, I think, him, um, and just the way that he shoots things, which is, like, so precise, and so, I mean, I love, like, the sh- we'll get to the, sh- the shot behind me of, uh, at the end with the pool, but, like, yeah, uh, just so many of the shots in this movie, and the, the editing rhythm of it is so, is gorgeous, and just is so understated. Which is something I love about this movie, and where it just feels like you have like a bird's eye view, like particularly that last sequence. Just yes. it feels like I'm just under this pool, and I'm seeing all of this from this particular perspective. And I think that's that's a big thing, and I think it's a credit to Hoyt Van Hoytema, who I agree is like one of our great like working cinematographers right now. Yeah, and also it's interesting how I think cinematographer is a much more like international kind of career path because right, I would say because Hoyt Van Hoytema, I think at least has had, like, a lot more of the success. And I think it's just because, like, his style just feels like it adapts beyond language in a really great way. Like, truly, if I didn't have subtitles for this, um, which I remember a lot of people said that was the problem with the initial American Blu-ray, terrible subtitles, one of the more infamous examples. Oh, interesting. Like, really glitchy, fucked-up subtitles. Um, Which is why I never owned this movie, which I would have probably in, like, 2009. But... Uh, with, yeah, just the, the style just really translates beyond language in a way that really works. It feels very, like, like great visual storytelling, yeah. truly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it is, it is very interesting, I think, the way that this movie, and, and especially because I'm comparing it a bit to the American version, how huh. quiet this movie can be, and how he will often, Thomas Alfredson and Hoytman Hoytema, because... Like, the way that they will just convey something through a cut or through, like, just a very subtle, very subtly. And, yeah, I I mean, that's the thing that makes this movie so great from a visual perspective is that it is, yeah, you could almost kind of watch it without subtitles in a a way, or without, like, the sound on in a bit. Um, But, yes, yeah. Yeah. You know, tragically, of course, after Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, that director cinematography team splits up. And, uh, they do, yeah. You know, and because we had who shot the snowman? Um, Dion Beeb? Oh, really? Of Miami Vice. And um, Spring Breakers, right? Right. Chicago, and Equilibrium, Collateral, Memoirs of a Geisha, Land of the Lost, Nine, Green Lantern. A fascinating career. But anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, why don't we just get to the pool? We talked about this movie a lot. I mean, is there anything before the pool that we haven't um, mentioned we want to... Well, what do we have? I'm trying to remember well, I mean, any other... I'm going to say there's one thing we haven't touched on, which... Yes, go on. ...is something also that is more explored in the novel um, about the gender identity of Ellie. Um, yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. Because it's something they kind of dance around throughout a lot of this. There's a lot of points where Oscar very adorably tries to say, like, oh, will you be my girlfriend? And then she's like, I'm not a girl. She said that multiple times. Which you yeah. initially think like, it's like, oh, is she a monster? I'm not a girl. I'm a monster. But it becomes a bit more skewed and kind of like murky as to what maybe her identity is. And particularly, there is a, a shot uh, while she is dressing where Oscar uh, sneaks, uh, sees a brief glimpse of her yeah, changing. Through the, through the doorway. Right, and we see just a brief shot of a genital area that... Yeah, 
doesn't quite seem, you know, like a traditional one necessarily. Yeah. Yes. And there's a great, like, there, there's a scene where, like, I can't remember which part it is, but they are talking and um, she says to Oscar, or they say to Oscar, would you still like me if I wasn't a girl? And he's right. kind of like, he's kind of confused by that, but he's like, well, what do you mean? You're, like, if you weren't a girl? And he's kind of like, I mean, yeah. And it is this very interesting way that this movie handles gender. And it's, it yeah, if sort of the... Yeah, I, and I love it because it is sort of a bit ambiguous. And yet there are those hints there where it's very interesting. And I think, especially for a vampire movie to kind of go into that is is so fascinating. Yeah, and I'll just say in the novel... Um, it's a lot more laid out about that backstory, which includes uh, information that uh, Ellie was an androgynous boy who was castrated centuries before by a sadistic vampire nobleman. I don't love that. <laughs> I don't. Yeah. Because yeah, it's like, it's I, one thing, the way the film handles it is so much more like nuanced, and it feels like, once again, you're seeing it from Oscar's perspective. Right. On like both a literal way and then on a sort of like contextual way. And I think it's very smartly handled, especially just the way that it's shot and the way that it's put together, because there's obviously a way to handle this that would have been very bad. And it's a very delicate scene to plan out. And I think they do a really great job, particularly of like putting in the insert shot. The editing of it works really yeah. well just to make it, it all feel like very consistent and very respectful. Yes. And also like uh, kind of on a similar note, like the, the scene later where they're both like laying in the bed, which again, yes. is a it's a very delicate situation you have to handle but right. i think is is one of the most beautiful moments in the movie i think where like it's the it's the moment where he kind of lets her he, he lets her in through the window and like they have this beautiful moment where they they go steady and <laughs> right uh she says like well do you have to do anything different when you go steady and he's like no not really but it <laughs> is that kind of childhood innocence of like yeah we're boyfriend and girlfriend now i don't know what that means but we're boyfriend and girlfriend now. And I don't know how long it'll last, maybe 48 hours, but... <laughs> yeah, but it, it is so sweet, and it's such a, a beautiful moment. Um, but then I guess... Well, I guess what we should also mention is that um, Locke, the husband of Virginia, yeah, has kind of been poking around, finding out... How does he find out where she lives again? I, I, I can't quite remember. I think they... There's, like, a rumor of the little girl, right? And he goes to... Right, yeah. I think, he like, his, it's connected, I think, to the the caretaker, I think. Right, right. Right. So I believe, that, yeah, it's, 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 like, his the announcement of, like, his death and then the mystery behind it and then kind of following the track of the murders. He becomes a little sleuth, a little detective. Does. Yes. A little hairy hole, uh, if you will. A little hairy hole. <laughs> That was my Snowman Saturday morning cartoon spinoff that I kept pitching. No one would take it. I wonder why. <laughs> um, I had L-I-L apostrophe and everything. <laughs> oh, fuck. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was a goofy episode. Um, I love it. I think it's I all it. my fault. <laughs> it is. This is all you. I'm innocent in this. I'm absolved of all sins. Um... <laughs> <laughs> but um but the, the 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 scene i think where like which is after the like blood pouring from her like head and everything and right. where he breaks in the great twist on the like the literal the the, ti- the titular 
vampiric rule. Yes. Of letting Let someone in. in. Inviting mm-hmm. them in. I think yes. it's the best execution of that particular trope I've seen. Because there have been others that have attempted that, and it doesn't quite work as effectively. It's just, like, her rumbling. Like, her physical acting during that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then that kind of goes into where Locke breaks in. Yes. And uh, he, she kills him. <laughs> um, and that's the, the most, like, we don't see any of the carnage of it. No, which I think is so, is so brilliant. I think it's so it's such a brilliant yeah. choice where he is like, if I remember correctly, it's Oscar sort of like slowly backing up from the door, and you kind of get the sense that it's it's both from like horror at what's happening, but also kind of like a, okay, I'm just gonna give her some space really quick to take care of this. <laughs> yeah, that's the important thing about any relationship. You need to have it's, your alone time. That's true. You got to give them alone time when they're having their dinner even when their dinner is a person. Um, I keep asking her, can we bring the TV trays in? And no, she just wants to have it in her room. <laughs> um, yeah, but I... Uh, yes, and then that goes into uh, the pool scene. Um, which, where to begin with this? Um, well, I mean, it was, we set it up partially, with like all the stuff yeah. with the, the one teacher leaving... I will say, oh, what we did set up, by the way, is the the bully's older brother. Right. Which is another scene I really love, where he's, like, hanging out after school. He's doing the thing, which is it's so sad, where he's, like, looking around, behind, like, peeking around a corner to see if his bullies are around. Yeah. And the bully has an older brother. And it's, like, the scene where, and again, it's very, like, subtle, kind of, in a way where you're like, okay, I understand this kid's family life as much as I need to, basically, to kind of get context. They, as to they do a great job of doling that with the bullies, because this can often be a cliche I don't like in the mm-hmm. film. Yes. Where they sort of have, like, a bully who ends up being this, like, sadistic. Because, you know, you know, we're going to stand by our hot takes. We're an anti-bullying podcast. Yeah, well, sometimes. Why? Well, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that can often be a thing, though, in movies, of just, like, let's make these bullies, like, the most evil kids possible. Mm-hmm. Just, like, the most ruthless, vile possible people. And it's not quite that. They, they're they awful. They're bad people, like I mentioned earlier. But yeah. in very human ways. And then, especially with, like, this kid who gets, like, hit. And, like, the, the way that whole sequence is done is so brilliant to, like, establish all that pain. But then, just when we get the reveal of the brother, he was someone where, like, I was around his age probably when I watched this movie. And I'm just like, right. all this, like, kind of reedy dude who has pimples very clearly like he doesn't he doesn't look like the toughest kid possible but no, just the fact that he's all. like yeah three years older and taller yeah. mm-hmm. it's just immediately like oh no i'm my defenses will never get past this yeah and i, I mean i just love and i love the way that like while we're on the the bullies i love that like there is clearly the one kid who is like who he's a little shit but then the other two kids are kind of just like going along with it like they're his two like little cronies um his toadies, as I like both to use. <laughs> yeah. My favorite term, toadies. <laughs> um, yeah, and but the way that that's handled, where it is like, you understand kind of like the dynamic between his, like, oh, that's clearly where he gets his like mean-spiritedness from. You know, uh, it, it, just that whole section is great, which leads to the section at the pool. Um, which, I mean... Is great. I, I love this sequence so much. Um, 
just 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 like the build up to it where you had that earlier thing I was mentioning with like mm-hmm. the 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 teacher leaves but then you just see that like they have the various different bullies stationed like one in the locker room and one like yeah. in the hallway and just indicate like this is a multi-faceted operation yeah and and the way they just do it, like then they just storm in and they're like everybody except him leave <laughs> yeah. like that's all they say and then they like all skedaddle and the knife comes out and just the shot focused on like that you know, switchblade just propelling outward. And then the whole thing was like, you're going to go underwater for three minutes, not breathing. And we do a couple cuts where it's like, we see Oscar underneath the water and then we see the clock. And then we see all the bullies like looking at each other. There's one of them that like sits down and is kind of like, what the fuck are we doing here? Kind of right, thing, yes. which I love. And, you, and some of them are just like, just anxious. Just like, is he, is he like yeah, going to die? Yeah. Like, he, he's not going to die. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just leave him after this and he'll be fine um, then we cut under the water and we have a shot that stays underneath the water where like we just see the hand that is yep. holding Oscar down mm-hmm. and we just hear some stuff in the sound mix of just like really like oh weird sounds that are happening like the door opens I think we hear initially then some fucked up like commotions going on it's very and muffled then, yeah and then that kid gets dragged and kicks his feet underneath the water. And I can't tell you how, like, when I was, I was what? I was, how old was I? I would have been 16 when I saw this movie. Maybe 17. Um, so I was just like, this is what real art is. I feel like I'm watching the old boy scene for the first time. Um, very much in that state uh, of mind. But I just... I thought this was amazing. This is just one of the most brilliant shots I'd ever seen in a movie. Yeah, I mean it. It still kind of is. I just the way that it holds on him the entire time, and yeah. like you hear the commotion going on. You hear it kind of muffled, like talking, Underwater. kind of some screams. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you kind of think you know where it's headed, and then you really like you see it, and you're like, oh, this is the sort of big catharsis that we have been kind of waiting for in a way, and it. it does feel a bit cathartic and yet and then it cuts to this shot the pool the wide shot of the pool yeah. and it is both cathartic and also a, a, a bit scary and horrifying <laughs> well yeah i mean i think it's because those bullies felt like actual children delinquent children ruffians yeah. hoodlums scoundrels um who you know just like, felt very naturalistic, and then when you see that the body's all around, it kind of feels like, because that kind of impulse, that, like, Oscar's whole thing is a feeling that, like, any of us have had, maybe at some point, that basic feeling of just, like, oh, I wish I could do something right to, like, that person mm-hmm. like, messed with me for some reason. Uh, but then Oscar, like we said, they hint several times that Oscar feels like he's uh, on the road to, you know, serial killer dumb. At some point, Harry Hole will investigate him once he comes of age. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, just this, this moment happens. And to him, Oscar, it is a win. Yeah, It's a huge mm-hmm. win. And he's like, oh, my wonderful love has come to save me. I am the damsel who mm-hmm. was in distress. And she ended up saving me. And now I get to live my life with her by going on a train with a big box. Here's here's the thing about the scene and why I think that sort of it, it's so great because I remembered this being the final shot of the movie. Right. And then it cuts to like a black screen and there's like snow falling. And I was like, movie over, 
great. Credits I feel roll. great. Let's Cummins. go. Yeah. Tomas Alfredson, I'll clap at his name. Yep. Mm-hmm. He'll never steer um, me wrong. <laughs> yes. And then it cuts to the train scene, and I, rewatching it this time, I kind of went like, oh my god, right, this is the, the real ending of the movie. And I kind of love it. I, I think it's really beautiful, and, you know, doesn't necessarily provide any easy answers, and I think... I, I love that about it. I think it's really, really beautiful mm-hmm. the way that it ends with just these two on the train and you don't really know if they'll like, you know, work it out or what's going to happen. But it is this like they have found each other and they have found some like companionship in this cold, dark Sweden that we live in. <laughs> right. Um, but. <laughs> but. The yes, implications of it. At the same time, while all of that is stewing in your brain, there's also just a certain point where you do just realize, like, I think that's even that's the initial thing. It's just because he's traveling with her in the same way that Hakan was doing yes. earlier. Mm-hmm. And so just this whole kind of, like, thing where that catharsis is once again exuding also such tragedy. Yes. So much, like, horrible tragedy to happen. Even We didn't even talk about this, but, like, I love the way that his, his mother is sort of depicted in terms of, like you mentioned, we don't get a lot of scenes with her, and she doesn't even have, like, many lines in the movie at all. I think the dad even has more lines in that one scene where, like, his buddy shows up, like, hey, let's drink, bro. What? Yeah. Kid? Cool. Which, <laughs> which is, like, such a realistic, like, neglectful mm-hmm. dad thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then, yeah, just the, the contrast where, like, the mom, when she comes back home, after she's just, like, found out, and everything, right? Because that's what happens, right? She, like, comes back home and she starts yelling at him and he goes to his room and, like, closes the door. And then he looks at his toys and then he leaves, basically. The next thing's like him going over to the pool. Yes, I think... I think that's right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, but it's over, like... What, what did she find out? Was it about, like, the the thing with the bully? I think was it was the it? thing with the bully, or... Is it the scene where they're at... They are both at his apartment? And his mom is, like, knocking on the door? Right, right and she's like, about? it's silent, oh, but I, you can hear see her screaming. Yeah, I think it's just that he had locked the door, and he's kind of like... But she comes to... back angry. She's, like, yelling at him from the start. Because that's the whole thing. It's like, after... Like, it's after the ki- the one guy dies, Locke. After mm-hmm. the one guy dies, there's just this shot of, like, the mom coming home, and immediately, just, like, screaming. I can't understand what exactly she's saying, because this, like, played over score, and there's no audio dialogue. But... It's her, like, screaming at him, and he just looks dejected, and then he immediately goes to his room, closes the door, she starts, like, knocking, and she's still screaming the whole time. Yeah, yeah. But what was that in reaction to? I'm, I'm I, think, I think it is, like, the, like, kids, what, what he did to the, the bully, like, hurting right. his ear or whatever. Best episode um, ever. I get, the, I get the movie now. Anyway, um, so yeah. so yeah, but that relationship, I think, just perfectly kind of sets that undertone for all of this that's going on. That at the same time, like, this catharsis happens, and they find each other, and they leave. It's like, that kid's leaving a mom behind who doesn't have a lot. Yeah. And also, he's leaving behind any sense of true security. Because he technically has security in that Ellie will just fuck up anybody that messes with him. But also, right. he has to be under her thumb this ancient old vampire 
who is in this body of this kid, who has lived so much more life, is just like, I don't know, I, I really like you, so you want to like hang out with me and be my bodyguard and my source of food and my like basically protector, putting that responsibility just the rest of your life, that's what it is. And it's with a kid. Little kid, you're not going to be a little kid forever, kid. Unless she bites you and makes you a vampire, maybe? But that's yeah, not indicated. Yeah, that's, no. That's not indicated, but It though. is that ambiguity, though, of, like, what, you right. know, like, do you read that this is a, a happy ending for them or not? It's kind of, like, it's the, the, the kind of, yeah, the thing, which I really love. And, I mean, like, a thing I thought about, I thought about this while watching the remake, which we'll get into in a little bit, but, like, right. the fact that, like, and I was, I was really upset to hear about that whole, like, origin for the handler guy because yeah. I, what i kind of gleamed from that was kind of that and the american one has like a shot of like a it's like a shot of the girl but with like another kid and it's like an old picture so in my head i was thinking oh this was hand- a previous kid right who then she's a similar like, that was also my initial read yes when i was younger and then then i read the book <laughs> yeah, I'm not listening to that. That's, that's still not movie. <laughs> not canon. Not no. my canon. Yeah. Um, but yes, I, I think that there is that the, that there a beauty in that in that they are together. But yeah, an underlying kind of ugliness and horror that like at the implications of it, which I think is the the real beauty of of why this movie is so great. Well, you know, those sound like. Pretty solid start to final thoughts, Brian. So your final thoughts on Let the Right One and any stray things you didn't mention are just overall summarizing things about this film. Yes. Uh, let the right one in. Um, I, I love this movie. I, I, I liked it when I first saw it, and it has gotten better uh, both rewatches I have done over the past few years. It, it's such a unique movie about vampires and vampirism and an interesting horror movie in that it is yes a horror movie because like a woman gets set on fire and like people get mutilated but it is not a horror movie in that or rather it it has a lot of humanity to it in a way where it feels more like a human drama but it is still a horror movie it's a very unique movie in that way um it's a gorgeous movie i mean like i really just cannot like emphasize how good this movie looks i i just love the look of it and the the rhythms of it um and yeah i mean i'm hoping that tomas alfredson can come back and make a great movie because clearly he is very talented um yeah a great movie a great unique horror movie in the sense that it is like usually when we talk about horror movies and kind of what horror movies are recommend, it's like gory and bloody and whatever, but this is a very beautiful horror movie and a very sweet horror movie. Um, yeah, I love it. What about you? Well, I want to start off my final thoughts by reading a bit from a review. I definitely remember reading, uh, that got me interested in this, uh, from Roger Ebert. Hell yeah. Our buddy Roger. Our boy. Uh, our boy, our patron saint, that isn't Steven Spielberg. Um, Roger gave this movie three and a half out of four stars, uh, calling it a vampire movie that takes the vampire seriously, drawing comparisons to Nosferatu and Nosferatu the Vampire, which I love that's this is copied from the Wikipedia 
spoilers, but <laughs> just the way that they just like to films like Nosferatu and the other Nosferatu. <laughs> um, but uh, he, he, I get the in- initial comparison. He describes the story. This is directly from the review of as two lonely and desperate kids capable of performing dark deeds without apparent emotion and calling it the best modern vampire movie, which I think is a title that it kept for Mr. Ebert, I believe. I don't know if he ever said that again before his yeah. passing. Yeah. And I, I would I say know, this... I didn't read his Twilight Saga <laughs> Breaking Dawn Part oh, 2. Man. It's, on, it's on his great movies list. What do you mean? All, all five of them. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is, though. I think this is one of the better modern horror movie, uh, uh, vampire movies and depictions yes. of vampires. Um, yeah. I Hey, Roger Ebert. He... Pretty good. Pretty good at his job. Right. But to continue with my final thoughts. Yes. Go on. Go um, I, I mean, I agree with him and you, obviously, about this. I think it is one of the great modern vampire movies. I think it's definitely one of those where, like I said, the, the reason I glommed onto this was more because I was like a big sort of like person who read movie critic, like especially genre critics all the time. It was just like, oh, man, this sounds great. This sounds like a fucked up vampire movie because this is like when I'm in high school as well. And I'm deep in just like, yeah, I want the weird shit. I don't want any of your mainstream stuff. I'm watching foreign cinema. And this movie comes in, and I'm thinking, oh, it's going to be more like, sort of like a gorier thing. Because it's mm-hmm. a vampire movie. And the gore's there, which I think adds it to more like any horror fan, I think, who respects genre, like that genre for like what it's capable of on, you know, our horror season here. Just truly like a movie that has gore and intensity, but also is truly, like Roger Ebert said, like, taking this all so seriously. Genuinely investing in just, like, what attracts one to a vampire? What humanity makes you interested in a mortal being who could be your uh, forever mate, but with the sacrifice of you can never really be with humanity again? That is a very old story that has existed since before Dracula. And it's just a curiosity... That, you know, we're, we get this kind of thing from um, from a, a country that, like, you know, we don't... Not a lot of Swedish films become box office hits in the States. Can't think of too many. Right, um, yeah. But just this was... This is the opinion to me of just, like, discovering a movie that has, like, such an interesting different perspective and a style and just so much that, like, an American couldn't do for me when I was younger. Just realizing that and then just really grasping at like what the horizons to be especially for like genre cinema and i think it's one of those rare ones as well where like there are other ones that i watched around that time that i dread rewatching because i worry like is it just like that nostalgia is gonna right. be completely destroyed um and like for example it's not completely destroyed with this movie but i rewatched old boy recently um because you know it had that release and whatnot mm-hmm. and i mean i'll just say old boy like, it's still a great film that's very well-crafted, but I see the cracks. I see the holes. I'm not in that, like... Harry hole? Sort of... <laughs> a bit hairy. You know, I mean, you know, that guy, the main character. He's got a lot of hair. hair at the start. He does. Great hair. Yes. Great hair. Wonderful hair. But yeah, but certain things just irked me in the wrong way. And with Let the Right One In, as much as, like, so much of the stuff on paper could do that, like, say, reading the novel did that, um, at the same time, like, the movie itself never loses, I think, that that kind of like that great uh, sort of perspective and tragedy and just interesting take on the vampire genre. I agree. It's just, it's one of the great vampire films of recent memory and an appropriate M for masterpiece pick that we had here, but 
we gotta briefly talk about at least the remake, which you yeah. mentioned. But this is one of many foreign films that uh, after, you know, it gained some kind of cult popularity in the States, immediately a remake would be announced. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we got, it's Matt Reeves directing, and it stars uh, little Cody Smith McPhee. Yeah. And uh, Chloe Moretz. Yep. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't get a chance to rewatch this movie. I rewatched it last when I did that panel, so a couple of years ago. But you rewatched it for this. I watched it for the first time. Oh, okay. I had not right. seen this movie. I, yeah, I had always been. I had heard of the of the remake, and I'm very averse to American remakes of foreign films for obvious reasons. But like, I also just I never knew that Matt Reeves directed this, who I secretly yes. like love i think he's a a great director um i really like this movie i really like the american remake uh which is called let me in um it f- is very similar to the book in a general sense i guess the main things that it changes that i think are interesting and to to talk about are it removes the um well it doesn't remove but it very much changes the like locals where you have like Virginia and our boys Locke and Yock um, to be like, he has like neighbors that he can kind of like see through the telescope um, and he kind of spies on them a bit. Um, but what it kind of does is it replaces that with, you were saying how uh, one of the, one of Locke or Yock, one of them turns into a bit of a little sleuth. Uh, towards yeah. the end of the film. And this movie has a detective played by one of my favorite actors, Elias Cotius. Um, yes, yes. Who is great. He has a great mustache, great glasses in this movie. Um, but as I really like what it does, what it kind of changes. I like the Elias Cotius kind of character, the way he's sort of investigating it, and, and his performance is great. Um, Richard Jenkins plays the the caretaker in the movie. Yep. Um, and what I will say about this movie though, is it is very much an American remake of let the right one in, in that the ways that the Swedish film is very subtle and very subdued. The American one is not in the sense that there is a lot of dialogue. Um, I will say like when the handler, uh, pours acid all over his face, I, I don't believe you see it, in the Swedish version too much, right? There's like a little peak you get. Um, you get, I mean, you do get at least one full shot of it when she's draining. Like the moment she right. starts draining, mm-hmm. there's like shot on it. Yeah. In the American like one. It leads up to that for a while. Yes. In the American one, it is like full, like you see it the entire time and it looks, yeah. it looks fine, whatever. Um, but, but I also think this is interesting because they haven't changed the setting in this movie. It is just transposed into America, but like it is like Reagan era evangelic evangelical kind of March nineteen eighty three. So like just right. a year after so, the original would have been said. Yes, and so like the, there's maybe they take of... place in the same universe, man. <laughs> the L M R T C U. Um, God, um, <laughs> and. Um, God, I lost my point. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's all right. It's all right. Um, fuck, what was I even saying? Uh, you, you were talking about Let Me In. Yeah. You were talking about Richard Jenkins. Richard American Jenkins. Remake, American Remake. Wrong. 
Um, oh, right. Nice well, subtle. Uh, yeah, it, it is like, I like the ways that it is putting the story into like 80s America where there's like talk of like, you know, evil and like kind of that whole thing with vampires as opposed to like the like his mom is more evangelical, kind of very strongly religious in the American remake. And it's a bit more subtle than like, because the thing is, this was still when like in 2010, 80s nostalgia wasn't like as overplayed as it was. It was yeah. still kind of fun. And I think they, this one at least, like, I was worried revisiting it. I remember in 2019 about, like, it's going to be like fucking the beginning of Stranger Things. And it's not. Right. It's, a, it's no. more ingrained in that culture than I would say even let me in, let the right one in is. Uh, a little bit. Mm-hmm. For the most part. It, well, the thing is, we're not, we're not Swedish, so we don't know. That's um, true. I don't, but at the same time, um, with, like, let me in, I remember really loving it when it first came out. Because I was actually kind of curious. Uh, obviously, I had the trepidation, like, oh, is the American Dream going to be bad? Uh, mm-hmm. It's going to work. And then I remember, I think, was this, this was like something that did, yeah, it was, it had a tiff and then Fantastic Fest. This was still when, uh, like, okay. a lot of these movies, like, Let the Red One, and I heard about through, like, those Austin kind of, like, right, specifically yeah. around that era. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, so it was definitely one of those that, I was curious about because I'd heard, oh, it's actually good? Oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. All right, let's see. And I remember loving it at the time when I saw it theatrically. Um, and mm-hmm. then it was one of the few because it did not do very well, if I remember right. It was not a success. Yeah, uh, for a bunch of 20 million, made 27. So, mm, not bad. Yeah, not great. Not good. Not good. But at the same time, um, I think they did a really good job with it. And I, I thought I was like I was really impressed at the time when I revisited it for that panel. I will say it lessened quite a bit for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I still think it's like one of the better examples. Like it keeps the spirit right, and I think the performers are all really great. Like this is still Cody Smith. This is I think this is my introduction to Cody Smith McPhee. Because had he done anything prior to that? Uh, he was in The Road before this. That was oh kind of his, right, like, big yeah. That was that was right, the year your, prior. This is early so. though. Yes. This is still early in the Cody Smith McFonazance. Um But <laughs> um, yeah, I remember like he was really great. And Chloe Moretz, who is such a fascinating sort of child actress of that fascinating. era. Fascinating, yeah. Yes. Uh, well, just like the way that she came up and then her sort of evolution, I think has been very curious. And I remember this was still like early for her as well. And I was like, wow, she's, she's clearly right. I mean, I just saw Kick-Ass, which I loved. Because I, I was still 16. have never seen Kick-Ass. That's a movie. We will definitely. That's def- yeah. that's like my, uh, like Adam had Boondock Saints. I had Kick-Ass <laughs> right. kind of thing. Right, Just right, embarrassing right. shit only a teen boy would like. Um, <laughs> but but anyway, yeah. So th- this was still very early for them. And I, I, this was around the time I started noticing Richard Jenkins. I thought he was great. Alas, Coteus, I found out around this time he was the guy from the Ninja Turtles movie when I was a little kid. So weird. <laughs> yep. Um, and... Yeah, and even Dylan Minnette's in this. He's one of yeah. the bullies. Yeah, he yeah. is. He's like the main bully in this, which is very funny. <laughs> right, yes. Uh, so I, I, I will say I think the cast does a really great job, and I think Reeves is a great director. Particularly, there's a great shot when a uh, car crashes, and oh, you're inside man. the back of the car. I remember yeah. that being the big hyped thing, and I thought, like, yeah, that was really great, and it looks really good, but I still feel like it's kind of what you're talking about. I think it does remove a lot of like the subtlety that's there in the original movie. Yeah, like uh, in a way that uh, makes it more of like a genre movie. That, that's still good, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but I don't think quite as impactful. Like a good example, I think, in the, of like the two comparing the two movies and kind of their their uh, 
you know, whatever, like they're comparing them, I think is like the scene where the bully like scratches his face, where in the original, it is just like one of the kids, the other bullies is like, man, who's going to tell that to his mom? In the remake, it is Dylan Minnette, like, like one of the bullies is like, come on, man, who's going to tell his mom? And then Dylan Minnette walks up to him and says, you're not going to tell your mom anything. You're going to tell her you fell down. And it's sort of explicitly said, and I, I prefer it in the original where it is very subtle, where he's lying to his mom about it. I don't know. As an American, I prefer it when characters tell me what they're going to do, and then they do it. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it is very much that. But I think, I mean, like you mentioned, the, it is very well directed. I mean, like, I think Matt Reeves is a great director, and I think this movie yeah, looks great. Um, I think it is very well directed. It's also, again, another great cinematographer, Greg Fraser who shot right. the American uh, remake, which is just so interesting. And you um, know, we should point out something, Brian. I think yes. this is also a first for you. This might be your first Hammer film. because this well, was I part noticed of the, this. <laughs> yes, yeah. Hammer restarted, I think, with this movie, if I'm correct. It was like around like the early, because right after this was Woman in Black, the Daniel Radcliffe movie, which I know was like their big theatrical. Right. Like their big, like they it made a lot of money, like in February of 2011. Uh, 2012? 2012. 2012. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, I remember, like, this was around the time they were starting, like, let's do new gothic horror films mm-hmm. for okay. modern age. Um, so, yeah, now you know everything about Hammer. You don't need to watch Christopher Lee or Peter Cushing or any of that bullshit. <laughs> it is so weird. Yeah, I, I saw the Hammer logo and I just thought, like, I, I saw it has, like, the, the, like, they do a kind of thing where they show, like, the old Hammer, like, renditions of those characters and stuff like that in like the thing and i was like oh it's it's that hammer films like you know it was very weird (laughs) um i do also want to point out just kind of last thing here is the the music in the remake is uh michael giacchino who is right great so right after um, he'd won my heart with uh 2009 when i still like really downloaded soundtracks on that 160 gig ipod i mentioned an hour and right. a half ago. <laughs> yes. um, uh, I had a lot of soundtracks from Michael Giacchino downloaded that specific year because of um, Star Trek. Yes. Which I think is a genuinely great, like, adapted score. Doesn't get enough credit. Mm-hmm. And then Up, which will... Is a great score. You, even, right. You can even... It's, it's a, a great Yeah, score. even though I don't love that movie, I think it's a, a very great score. A deserved win for his Oscar and everything. Yeah. And also, you know, now that guy's directing things. He is. It's so that, weird how he's directing things, because that never happens. Yeah, it's a, right? a weird pipeline of composer to director. I, would you that, think that would happen more often? But no. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that Werewolf by Night thing was not, like, the best thing ever, but I was like, he's, he's got chops. He's got It was a good the proof juice. of concepts. Yeah, basically. yeah. He treated it as, and now he's going to be making them, allegedly. The Ant movie. Right, he is doing that. I'm excited. I, I love Giacchino. I think he has, like... I mean, I think The Batman is one of the best comic book movie scores of the past, I don't know, 15 years or so, maybe more. Particularly that main theme is like, especially for a character crowded with memorable themes. Yes, exactly, exactly. I think he, yeah. Um, But he's great. And yeah, I think what surprised me though most about the American remake was that it is good. And it is at least, for me at least, different in some ways where i think it it is interesting to watch like i feel like usually with these kind of movies it's like eh, just watch the original like 
you know, foreign language one, it's better, even if the American remake is good. But, like, I, I would not be opposed to someone, like, watching the American version of this movie for some reason if they, you know, if they wanted to watch that one first, I would not. Right, by which you mean the Showtime original series that ran from 2022 <laughs> yes, to 2023, <laughs> if I'm right? Yeah, something Which, like by the that. way, we have not seen. I literally, no. I was telling Brian, like, I'm going to watch the pilot for this, and it's mm-hmm. nowhere. This show, I because it's on Paramount Plus, it's apparently on Showtime, but no one has Showtime. They have Paramount Plus because they want Showtime now. Exactly, yep. <laughs> Uh, streaming is great. There's nothing wrong with it at all. Um, Especially because I'm sure... Because by the, I was talking with the, Brian about this. This was so weird. We're like, within months after the American release of this movie, they had announced, because I followed Slash Film like all the time at this point in my life, um, just, oh, they there was this like announcement of TNT doing a Let the Right One In TV show. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so like 2009, cut to development hell for a decade yeah basically and then uh and then it suddenly comes out on showtime it lasts a season and then it's gone yeah an an unfortunate like just reoccurring thing in the streaming age i think is that like hey they made a let the right one in show and it kind of doesn't exist which is a bit unfortunate i don't know october 9th through december 11th 2022 Starring Damien Bashir, yeah, Anika Noni Rose, Grace Gummer, Nick Stahl. This is a weird cast. It's a very weird cast. Oh, it's got a, a this guy, uh God, a Zel Zelkio Ivanek. Yes, he's a recurring character. And I'm gonna I'm I wanna read the premise here. Mark Kane is a single father who has been protecting his daughter, Eleanor, after she turned into a vampire ten years prior. She's stuck in the age of twelve ever since, hoping to find a cure. Together they've been hiding and running across country until they finally settle in New York City. Meanwhile, Eleanor meets and bonds with a twelve-year-old boy, Isaiah Cole. As a scientist, Claire Logan is brought in by her father to help find the cure for her brother's vampirism. Okay, I haven't seen the show and I don't want to like pile onto the show that already doesn't exist, but that does not sound fun. And it does, that no, does not sound No, that sounds like someone development noted the fuck out of the show. It does. Like, New York City. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, also, like, the, the protagonist now is not a little boy who has been seduced by this vampire girl. It's a father who's trying to protect his daughter. Right, yeah. Stuck permanently at 12. Because that's how I treat my daughter. Just like she's forever a 12 year old now now it's perfect she never hit puberty everything's great <laughs> as i'm going around trying to solve vampirism too just like he's it turns it into like the fugitive or something <laughs> it's like why <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, again which is why like the american remake of the film i think is is quite good it doesn't feel like that that's what you would expect from an american remake exactly exactly yes and in that movie is not that it is instead just an americanized version of it that also just happens to be made by a a pretty great director, in my opinion. It's um, one of the good ones. I would just th- yeah. it's not a huge club. Not really. That would be very no. interesting to to yeah to see what are we the do good a series out of that American remakes. <laughs> we do our season on American remakes. God, oh, that's a rough season. <laughs> a lot of E for egregious picks. Yeah, it's just all E's. <laughs> Except six, for like, oh, we found E's. a good one. We found a good one. <laughs> but anyway. Anyway, so that is our discussion finally on Let the Right One In. 
with no tangents and a wonderfully concise. Not so brief. <laughs> right. Almost too brief, uh, actually. Let's keep going. <laughs> for sure. But, you know, we can't because we got to do our segment Between the Lines. So every episode, uh, Brian and I uh, do this segment called Between the Lines, where we recommend a movie that's related to some degree to the movie we're talking about, maybe another M for Masterpiece pick, maybe just something related to the movie itself. So Brian, what's your pick? Oh man, I've brought an absolute banger today. Thinking a lot about vampires, thinking a lot about the 21st century in vampires. Uh, so I picked a film from 2013 uh, from... Jim Jarmusch, Only Lovers Left Alive. Probably my favorite Jim Jarmusch film, I will say. I think this movie's great. So to just to briefly run down what it's about, it is about a a vampire played by Tom Hiddleston, who is living in Detroit. This is post-Detroit's um I don't know how to describe it, but like that whole Detroit going bankrupt kind of thing. I don't yeah, there's a much yeah, there's a much more bankrupt. nuanced way to say it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The city but, literally went bankrupt. No, that's okay, like, okay. I thought that was just kind of like a, you know. Like, no, you think that's a joke? No, it's it's literal. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> right. It is sort of post Detroit going bankrupt. Everything is kind of decaying, and he is depressed. He's a depressed vampire who makes like music. He makes like in, industrial, like noisy, like brooding rock music like it, it's it's great i love it. i love the music that he makes and uh his lover is played by tilda swinton they've been together for centuries but they live apart for various reasons and another like we're talking about the great modern vampire movies i think this is maybe the one for me i think i absolutely love this movie i think it has so much of the qualities that make jim jarmusch's films great um like there are the certain uh, trance-like sections where, like, the music is going and the way he depicts vampires eating blood or drinking blood is almost like this, like, high where they, like, lean back in the chair and, like, all of those kind of trance-like qualities but also I think has the, like, hangout qualities that Jim Jarmusch can have as well. Like, they, they talk a lot about music. Uh, they go visit Jack White's house. <laughs> which is such a funny bit in the movie. Um, and I think, like we talked about, is a great movie that depicts vampires in a kind of grounded way, depicts the sort of depressed, suicidal vampire in that way. You've got Mia Wasikowska in here as well. Uh, she's a great, great performance in this movie where she plays Tilda Swinton's sister, who's a bit more uh, chaotic uh, in a way. Uh, John Hurt as well the the great john hurt and also in a performance i love i just love his performance in this movie so much is anton yelchin the great late anton yelchin who i i love so much and also like uh, jeffrey wright shows up as well in there and there's other people but it is a fantastic movie a really incredible like 
depiction of the vampire and also a great sort of like depiction of the vampire in in the sense of of how Tom Hiddleston's character views the world with this like nihilism that is like I think also doesn't help the the, the Detroit setting helps that as well it is uh, it's a great movie I love it it's my favorite Jim Jarmusch film um yeah you've seen this movie right of course I've seen this film. Yes. Do you like this movie? Yes. This movie's great. I love this movie. And this was probably the first Jarmusch I saw, and I haven't seen a lot of Jarmusch's admittingly. I think this is also my first one, yeah. Um, no, I'm sorry. It was uh, Ghost Dog Way of the Samurai, uh, one of the great films. Oh, a great movie. Yeah, I should rewatch that one. But, yeah. but this was this is one of the few other ones I've seen, and I think it is great. I think it's, it's um, just such an interesting movie where like we were kind of debating this off mic before we started this, where you told me this pick. And you were like, oh, even though it's not a, a horror movie, I'm like, up, up. I would say it's still a horror movie. It just happens to have like this different aesthetic to it. Because yeah. I, I, I just have a sensitivity to that. Because to rant about my days being a horror podcaster, which this would have been the year I started doing horror news radio. So oh, okay, okay. I remember being like such a huge fan of this and really praising this. Certain horror fans can be very protective of what's considered a horror movie. I remember hearing that right. a lot about this movie at that time when I brought it up, say, on that show. And I just think that's so misguided because this is still, like, a great vampire horror movie. But just from the perspective of, like, I don't know, these guys are, like, chilling out. Vampires chill out, too, guys. Like, when they're not sucking necks all the time, when Dracula hasn't invited over a lass to his castle, they gotta chill out. And they're, like, hanging out, talking about, like, bullshit and listening yeah. to great music. Great and music then. And then John Hurt shows up as, who is he? Again, he's, he's like an actual person, right? I think he, oh, in the movie He's Christopher Marlowe, yes. Yes, who is like, and in, in the film he is like the guy who wrote the, the, the Shakespeare, yeah, actually wrote the... The, the good one of those, not an, an anonymous. Yes. Uh, like, the Roland Emmerich film, but... He, he is sort of like, oh, that, that fucking fake, that phony Shakespeare as, like, a, a picture of him is on the wall. But it works in, like, almost the way of, like, I, a, sh a movie I recommended a, a couple episodes ago, Bubba Hotep. It's a horror movie just from the weird perspective of, like, yeah, this is what happens in the off time. <laughs> it is, yeah. And it is, like, that thing of, like, like I said, like, that, that hangout style that Jarmusch has, but, like... Yes. It also, another thing about Jim Jarmusch is he is fucking cool. He is so cool. I mean, like, the sunglasses and everything. He's a cool guy, and his movies are cool, and this movie is is very cool, and I mean, like, there's a scene early on where Anton Yelchin is just showing Tom Hiddleston, like, these old guitars, and it plays out entirely, and they're just talking about guitars, and it is, it, yeah, it's great. Um, I love it. I think it's just so great, and I think... A genuinely great performance from Anton Yelchin, who is an actor I loved. Um, I still love. He, yeah, he rules in that movie. I miss him. Yeah, I miss him. that was one of those celebrity deaths that really affected me too. Just yeah. from like the the shock of it. It's like him, Philip Seymour Hoffman, like those. Type oh of, like, yeah, what? Those that are the ones just that happened. Still get me when I see them in a movie where I'm just like, oh god. Yeah, for sure, for sure. But I mean, also, you know, I do want to shout out also. You speak of Tom Hiddleston, obviously, like him and Tilda Swinton were kind of like what the movie was sold on. Yes. I do want to emphasize that, like, seeing this movie at that particular time, where, like, Tom Hiddleston, Loki, Tumblr shit 
was just leaked onto the other parts of the internet. Mm-hmm. Pretty hardcore. And it still is, you know, one of those proofs to me of, like, Tom Hilson is a very talented actor. He's not just Loki. He's one of the better actors to, like, rise out of the MCU. He But is. the problem is that he, I think he picks more safe projects than he should. At, but at the time, this is an example of, like, one of the interesting choices he did. Yes, uh, yeah. And especially if you, like, know about his background from, like, uh, Joanna Hogg's early films, which are yes. very weird and interesting. But, like, he is incredible in this movie. I... I like, it truly is a tragedy to me that he has gotten, like, sucked up by that Marvel thing. Especially after he had an out. He had a clean out. He did have a clean out. They, and, I mean, yeah, like I said, around this time, this is when he's doing, like, High Rise. He's doing Crimson Peak. Yes. Not a great movie, but he's in Kong Skull Island, which is at least an interesting, like, choice for him to be making. And, and he made such an impression. Like, I like that movie more than you do, a lot more. But he's, like, him and Brie Larson are just non-existent in that film, despite being kind of our main human characters. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, he's good on Loki, but, like, uh, it's... I'm sorry, but I it's a know. Marvel thing. I don't care about it anymore. I don't know. I have complicated <laughs> things, because I liked the first season of Loki. That was probably the last Marvel thing I did genuinely like. Yes. But I, now that season two is coming out, and for many reasons Ooh. it's just kind of like a, oh man even though bummer things like i was kind of excited when i heard kihu kwan was gonna at least get another mm-hmm. job mm-hmm. for disney that disney check and I, yeah. I liked Owen Wilson a lot on that show but i just don't know if i can even watch that second and it's coming out in like a week yeah just, uh, hey i got the mcdonald's meal with the little sweet and sour pack that had the little loki logo on it <laughs> oh i wonder if that's written by rick and morty writers oh god no it, I mean, it is. Spoilers, it is. But anyway, um, now, yes. let me go ahead and introduce my pick here. Uh, great episode, running great. We're not <laughs> going too long at all. Professionals. Professionals. Um, so, my pick uh, is another film that I would consider an Emperor masterpiece. Would have come out about eight years or so after uh, Let the Right One In came out. And um, it is a film, though, not from Sweden, but South Korea. It is the 2016 film... Train to Busan, which, uh, if you don't know out there, is the sort of disaster zombie movie in which we follow our main lead, uh, who has, um, and I'll, I want to I say a couple of names at least, apologies once again for fucking up names, uh, Gong Yu, um, who is a fund manager, and his wife recently left him because he was too selfish, literally, they described that in the dialogue. And the, they, they open up, they're like, one of my favorite things to indicate, like, somebody has fucked up royally is like he comes home with like oh fuck it's my kid's birthday he has a little daughter and he comes back home and he's like hey look i got you a present and she opens up a nintendo wii and then she looks over to her tv and then you follow him as he looks to the tv and there's another wii that's been clearly used <laughs> that she would have gotten like last year pretty much and he's like oh oh no <laughs> So he decides, like, you know what? I'll let you have um, a weekend with your mom. So I'm going to take you on the train to Busan. Is it the thing? Um, <laughs> and uh, I'm going to take you on the trip. I'm going to drop you off, you know, meet with your mother. And uh, at the same time, all this is going on, we see in an opening credits scene a deer who has been run over in the middle of the street. And then suddenly it gets up and it starts moving. And it approaches a car that's about to come by. And then we cut to, like, you know, 
the train boarding. We meet a couple colorful characters who are going to be seeing down the line as they're all stuck in this train, where one of the um, attendants arrives and has a little bite that he's trying to cover up, trying to work at his job, and then uh, zombie outbreak on a running train, folks. <laughs> That's what this is. It's And these zombies are vicious. The initial sequence where a zombie comes up, it is just like you see a person die, and just like it feels like, oh, they just died here, and then the way the bodies contort, the way that they move, it feels so visceral in a way that like works perfectly for like this amazing like crowd pleaser of a movie this movie like i saw this because i did the horror podcast and this was a movie we got as a screener Ooh! i got to see it early before it's like american release and i was like oh i'm curious about this i've heard a lot of good things and i i love having that with like a movie that like i just know so little about and then going into it and just being like blown away to a degree this is just one of my favorite movies that came out this decade I genuinely, like, love just the way that it does. A lot of, like, the Irwin Allen disaster cliches. Like, it's not, like, it's definitely, like, a genre movie, both in terms of horror and a disaster specifically. Because it has that whole setup of, like, we're on this train, contained space, something horrible happens. We have a few ragtag passengers who become our heroes, including, I want to mention him because you might have seen him recently in Eternals, uh, Ma Dong-suk, um, who was, like, the tough guy. In Train to Busan. And he has a whole sequence where, like, at one point... Because the whole thing is they're trying to get to the front. They're all the way in the back. And they have to go all the way to the front of the train to stop it. But they have to go through all these, like, different cars with zombies. And there's one that's, like, completely full of them. And he's like, you know what? We're gonna, like, get some of, like, the overhead, like, container trays. Take them off. I'm gonna put them on my hands. And I'm gonna bum rush through these guys. Because I'm this big, strong hulking dude. One of my favorite scenes in a movie of the last, like, ten years or so. Such a brilliantly executed, like, horror sequence, action sequence, and also just, like, tense thriller sequences I'd seen in a movie. I just, I love this fucking movie, and I try and, like, spread the word of it. When anyone ever asks me, Thomas, what's a really great underrated, like, horror movie? It's Halloween, spooky season, I want to watch something really good. Train to Busan <laughs> fucking rocks. <laughs> You know, you you have picked a good time because I, I have not watched this movie, despite like I've been telling you about this ever since I saw it. You did I, knew I it at the time. I remember when you saw this movie, I had heard about it, and then you had been like, "This thing's fucking good," and I, I just <laughs> have never gotten. I gave this exact same it. speech. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I will be correcting that this year. I promise, because. Yeah, it sounds great. I've always been like interested in it and it's always been on like it's always been on like those like underrated horror movies you haven't seen kind of thing on those lists. It's always like at the top of them, so yeah, I need to check it out. I mean, I I will say this, Brian, I told you about this. Um a local independent theater near the both of us is playing this film theatrically. Right. I think if I'm right, on the day this episode comes out. Let's find the out. The twenty fourth. Tuesday, October 24th, 7 p.m. Yeah, you're right. Yep, and which will be the day this episode comes out. <laughs> yes, yeah. I've never seen it in a theater, which is, like, a thing I would love to do. Yeah. I'm at least glad that I can convince somebody to be really invested. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I'm excited to watch it. I'm excited. It was interesting also, I just want to shout out the director briefly, because uh, the Yeon Sang-ho, who was an animation director prior to this, 
Huh. Uh, interesting. And the only other film of his I've seen is the animated sort of um, side quill, I guess, called Soul Station, which right, is about sort yeah. of what's going on at the same time, but in Soul. It's a pretty solid, like, it's that kind of cell shading animation. Sure, yeah, yeah, like yeah, the style he works in a lot. So, like, he did that, and he's done a couple other animated films prior. And after this, he did, I know there was this, like, weird superhero comedy called Psychokinesis. Um, mm. Then uh, the then the spinoff to Train to Busan called Peninsula, which I heard was a pretty good action movie. Yes, I don't know if I've heard anything about that. I just heard that they were making a kind of sequel, kind of like parallel. But it was thing like, to... but it's a whole side story. It's diff- yeah. It's like what's once again what's occurring on the other side of this. And I had seen Soul Station. I was like, right. that's pretty good. I can't wait to see this. And everything I heard from people was like, it's all right. I'd still be curious to see it, though, I think. Yes. But let's go ahead and repeat our titles for everybody out there in case you want to add these to your spooky watch list. Halloween's a week away from the time we're releasing this episode. That is true, yeah. Michael Myers is almost here. Yes, um, and we're not recording this early at all. Uh, (laughs) We don't do that. That is the one professional thing we do. We do bank our episodes, but that's where our professionalism ends, basically. (laughs) That's true. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but what's your title, Brian? Uh, yes, I had Jim Jarmusch's 2013 film, Only Lovers Left Alive. And I had the 2016 South Korean film, Train to Busan. But now uh, we're going to be uh, wrapping up the show, but you know, stay tuned to find out what we're doing next. And uh, we just want to thank some people while we're heading out. First, we want to thank Burial Grid for our music on the show. Purchase his music at Burial Grid. Dot com, um, which I haven't said the title of the track. That's actually our theme music. I just want to shout it out. It's really good horror music. It would fit on Halloween playlist. Uh, it's from his album Where We Go from 2018, and it's called M Was the Shape of Its Mouth. Cool. Great title. Great title. Wonderful <laughs> title. Yeah. Proud to have it as our theme music, sir. Uh, but anyway, um, thanks to him. Purchase his music, you know, at burialgrid.com. Uh, thanks to Michelle Kyle for our artwork. Uh, follow her at mishkyle96 on Twitter. Um, and thanks to our supporters on Patreon, patreon.com slash cinema number two letter, where for just $1 a month, you get access to, uh, you know, bonus episodes that we like to record. We like recording side things, including, as of yet, you would have heard our Friday the 13th uh, big marathon, which we're about to record after oh boy. this. Uh, so yeah, I, we'll, we'll talk about that. And then this shouldn't be like, maybe not too long after this, you will hear uh, the universal drive-in thing where I took yes, uh, yeah. previously, like a couple days ago from when this is released uh, to a drive-in uh, where we talked about, uh, you know, a bunch of universal monster movies and saw them and introduced Brian to the world of that horror. But I should mention, of course, at the time that this episode's coming out, the following day, so October 25th, if you're a patron, you'll be able to vote for one of the movies that we're going to be doing for next season, which we're announcing it here. We might as well, that um, our next season is going to be focused on a studio celebrating 100 years, Disney, uh, going very different from the horror track, as it were, to uh, that, that studio that everyone loves and owns everything. That's why we love them. Um <laughs> And so uh, we're going to, though, you all get to pick for, yeah, a rebellious bit against Disney, because we're going to be talking about the egregious pick. We got to have the bad one. You all get to vote for which one of those we do. And we have two very different films for them (laughs) to vote between. So our first option here is Tomorrowland, the 2015 Brad Bird film starring George Clooney. 
uh, that was a big summer sci-fi extravaganza yep. that uh, went awry in very interesting ways. Uh, there's a lot to talk about with that movie. We both have not seen it since the theater. Yeah. We both like Brad Bird movies for the most part. Love Brad Bird. Absolutely. But yeah, so that or the other option, which is the wild option. <laughs> the 2002 film based on the Disney theme park attraction, The Country Bears. A wild movie that is on Disney Plus that you all can watch. Celebrates 21st anniversary. Um, and so I'm curious, Brian, because I introduced both of these to you as potential topics. What do you hope in the patrons go for if you can pick a favorite? You know, and if anyone doesn't know what The Country Bears is, pl- please Google it. <laughs> please watch the trailer because it will. It, it, it'll pay off. Brian was not aware, and I told him, and he Googled, and he was transformed? Wild. Just <laughs> very weird. He hasn't even seen the movie yet, everybody. No, it just, I'm looking at the poster, I'm looking at the letterboxed heading, and it just, goofy. As much as I am, I would be down for that. I'm kind of pulling for Tomorrowland. I had mentioned this to you, we hadn't seen it uh, since 2015. And also, it's just the only Brad Bird movie I've never, like, revisited. You know, yeah. I've revisited Ratatouille and Ghost Protocol. I've just never revisited Tomorrowland, so I would be very interested to see where it falls in my in my Brad Bird ranking and how it maybe changes my feelings on him and his movies and stuff like that. But yeah, I think either of these are very fruitful for discussion. Oh no, of course, yes. <laughs> it just depends on what kind of episode do you want. Do you want more of a Wish Upon episode, or do you want more of a Van Helsing episode? <laughs> Fair. Very good point, right. actually. Yeah. Just depends on what the patrons might want. Yeah. And, you know, like I said, for the $1, you get those bonus podcasts and also the ability to vote for what we talk about. You control the schedule with us. You know, you're a fellow programmer for the cinema to the letter. <laughs> but to find us, uh, you know, we're at Cinema to the Letter everywhere on your Instagrams, your Blue Skies, your Facebooks, your Axles, and all sorts of other places. <laughs> Um, whenever there's on social media, we'll be there at that particular handle. And uh, for me, you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at NotTheWho'sTommy. And I also do some writing at uh, MarianiThomas.wordpress.com and at Film-Cred.com. And I just want to shout out um, on the FilmCred review, we recently had uh, Shaquille Lambert as a guest, my buddy, who you might have heard if you're a patron, uh, do the Saw X audio review which was a wacky wild dumb thing that we did (laughs) that was very fun and uh yeah so uh, definitely become a patron of film credit if you have the cash and help out the the writers on that site and hiel peralta the host who i am uh you know because i produce that show over there on the patreon my partner in crime uh yes and you can find me on twitter sometimes at uh b-r-y-a-n-d-r-a-d-e number three uh but you can mostly find me on letterboxd just logging movies, making lists uh, at my name. And uh, yeah. Look, yeah, go look at my lists. That's my. <laughs> look at the lists, people. Yeah. The lists. We make them for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, for more of those reasons, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or other podcasting platforms, whatever you have, whatever podcatcher app. If you're listening on Talk Film Society, you want to listen to all the other great shows on that network. And you can also dig into the archives and our Podbean main feed for, you know, the first season, early episodes of this season, all the double edge, double bill backlog stuff, all there. And, you know, if you can't support us, uh, you know, financially with the Patreon, that's cool. Money can be tight. We're all good with that. 
But the completely free way to help us out is to rate, review, or simply share the show around to give us more visibility. And especially, you know, because we're two uh, very lonely, sad boys who hang out in Sweden. <laughs> we are. Yeah. Waiting for vampire girls to notice us. <laughs> Playing with a little knife, just stabbing a tree. I'm not doing that. I'm playing oh. with the Rubik's Cube. You're doing the knife thing. I'm just like, dude, I'm lonely, but Jesus. What are you doing? That tree didn't hurt you. It already has enough notches. Brian! Well, on that note, we gotta end this episode. Uh, somehow. I uh, know it's gone by in a flash, but we have to end this episode because uh, we gotta announce next time it's the season finale, everybody, for our horror season premiering on Halloween midnight. That's the plan. Spooky time. The spookiest Ooh, day. I'm getting scared. Just you talking We're going to be doing <laughs> our uh, A for A typical choice for the season, which was Exorcist 3 Legion. So, yep, we're going from this austere sort of uh, you know foreign film that came in and had such a weird originality to it to the f- second sequel to The Exorcist, <laughs> which you'd think would be terrible. But I don't know. I don't agree with that. And Brian, you still have not seen that yet. I have never seen it. Uh, I still have only seen the first Exorcist film, which I will be rewatching in a couple of days. Um, I'm very curious because everyone says it's a masterpiece. So I'm very curious. Yes, there'll be a lot of discussion about the Exorcist franchise. We'll also be definitely talking about, we should mention, uh, Legion, the director's cut. Right. Uh, which uh, we will try and watch as well. But yeah, so we're going to be talking about all of that next time on our big season finale. But until then, everybody, have a quiet, restful sleep in the sweet Swedish snow.